So as always, we're thankful for the opportunity that is ours to assemble, to gather, to do so, to lift our voices together in song and participate in the various acts of worship, including a consideration of at least a section of the Word of God tonight. We do come to the fourth Sunday night of the month of April, and that brings us to another installment of our questions and answers. And so tonight, I hope that you have your Bible handy. We'll be looking at several passages in the Word of God that are pointed or at least to us by virtue of questions that you have asked. As always, let me say to you that if you have questions or perhaps things have arisen, please just write them, put on a piece of paper, put them in that box out there in the foyer. Or if you wish, just share them with me personally or by some other means, direct them my way, and I'll be happy to include them among some of the future questions and answer sessions. Tonight, the two questions that we have are each fairly lengthy. And therefore, only two questions this evening, but I think you'll recognize as we move our way through them that some of the features consistent with them will be a little bit more demanding than just a very direct and brief kind of answer. One of them is the one with which we'll begin. We'll begin with this introductory slide, which as always is a reminder that the questions are those you have posed, not ones that I have developed or come up with, but rather, your insistence, and all, all of these really came through being shared in the box out in the foyer. The opening question reads like this. Is defending yourself unbiblical? Is defending the country wrong? So, those questions by themselves didn't take long to read. But as you might be aware, there is perhaps more to this than just a simple one-word answer in each case. What about the case, is it scriptural to defend yourself? For instance, is it all right for a Christian to carry a gun? Is it okay for a Christian to otherwise carry a weapon of some sort with the possibility of using it to injure or maybe even take the life of somebody else? Would that be consistent with the Word of God? As you can well tell, this has been a matter of some controversy and in fact some discussion for quite some time, so I hope tonight as we allow the Word of God to, to do the talking, that we'll at least be able to arrive at some consistent appreciation for at least a point of view I'm going to, to at least set before you. As we do that, you'll notice on this slide, I tried to at least begin this by couching it in the language of what in the mind of some makes it such that you probably have heard an answer to it. For instance, you probably heard, well, didn't the Bible say to turn the other cheek? So if somebody slaps you on one cheek, you make sure to don't do anything that might in some way add to a degree of controversy or defend yourself, you turn the other cheek if they want to slap that one too. Or to put that in slightly different language, didn't Jesus say, you love your enemies? Wouldn't an enemy be someone who perhaps is holding you at gunpoint? And in your love for them... Could you bring a consideration of taking their life or purposefully injuring them? Maybe to ask it in a third way. Is it right for a Christian to use force against someone who is either threatening you or some member of your family, or maybe doing so in such a way that great harm could otherwise come? Now, I've asked three different questions, all of which surround more or less the same idea. You maybe have heard, I know that I have over the years, someone would say, well, a Christian just cannot react 
in a way that might lead to the challenge, difficulty, or harm of the one who's doing this. Because to do so would be inconsistent with various verses you and I have already noted. Before we, in fact, give to that, why don't we consider a few others? Let's start in the Old Testament. In Exodus 22, would you note with me as we consider the first couple of verses of that chapter? Now, in fairness, we are beneath the law of Moses as we read this. But we are merely insistent on asking what premise, what principle, what concept might well be involved that could at least offer some things that we should seriously consider. Chapter 22, I'll read the first few verses of that chapter. If a man shall steal an ox or a sheep or kill it or sell it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief be found breaking up and be smitten that he die, there shall no blood be shed for him. If the sun be risen upon him, there shall be blood shed for him, for he should make full restitution. If he have nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the theft be certainly found in his hand alive, whether it be ox or ass or sheep, he shall restore double. Now in the midst of that presentation, through Moses, God in fact challenged the people of Israel. Certainly thievery was not encouraged. Stealing was not something consistent with the law of God. In fact, one of the Ten Commandments had already asserted, Thou shalt not steal. But did you notice in the midst of that discussion, verse number 2 had read like this, If a thief be found breaking up, and be smitten that he die, there shall no blood be shed for him. So putting that in your language in mind, there's a man breaking in, his, in one of the tents of the ancient Israelites. He is caught breaking up in the very act of doing this. The people who apparently lived there defended themselves and the circumstances sufficiently that the thief died. The text went on to say, There shall no blood be shed for him. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Here's a circumstance in which, again, a person breaking up as a thief, and he, in fact, in the interest of the moment, is brought to death. Other translations read this as being, There shall no blood guiltiness be connected to that thief. So in other words, there was an element of justness with respect to what was done concerning his death. Now here was a case in the Old Testament where it seems clear that God gave to His children, the people of Israel, the right to defend their property, to defend themselves in light of this thief breaking up. Now we might well note in verse number 3, if the sun be risen upon him, so in other words, now apparently it's daylight in a sense that one can make recognition, understanding of that which is taking place. There shall be blood shed for him under that condition. Apparently it was something rather different about the circumstances connected to the defense when perhaps it was at night, or at least the matter was not clearly taken care of in the course of what was easily appreciated. Perhaps under cover of darkness, perhaps under some other cover of concealment, you'll notice there was no blood to be shed guilty for the man. Now, we'll talk in a moment about that circumstance of the daytime, but at least for right now, something has been said, which has really allowed us to observe that in that case, at least, God apparently had no problem with folks defending themselves. 
Let's read on as you come near the bottom of that slide and note a few other verses that seemingly attach right to it. That mention of blood guiltiness takes us back to Genesis 9, verse 6. Right after the flood had, had taken place, Noah and his family stepped out onto an earth in which there were no other occupants, in the human capacity at least. And you and I recall that at that point, God rather definitively declared, if you take man's life, then your life will be taken. In other words, there is bloodshed in regard to the matters connected to that kind of thing, so much so that if you commit murder, then your life will be taken for his. Now one more time, you begin to see that God looked upon the vitality, the worthfulness, if you will, of human life in a very special way. So much so that in Numbers 35, great detail is given connected to the cities of refuge. If a person accidentally contributed to the death of another, it could not be with premeditation, it could not be with purposeful and directed pre-planning, but if you purposeful, or rather somehow, innocently contributed to the death of another, you could flee to the cities of refuge. And there you could remain safe, there you could remain until the death of the high priest, and thus the statute of limitations would run out in light of the family who might well have your death in mind. To say all that that way is perhaps to continue that thought like this. There at the very least, in those words of Exodus 22, was a presumption then that one could defend himself and his property. Holding that thought in mind, let's consider Nehemiah chapter 4. As we turn the page to that little Old Testament book, we find the following scenario. God's people found themselves in a rather unfortunate plight. They had come back from the captivity in Babylon. They had thus resettled the Jerusalem area, but there was a problem. Jerusalem had no wall. And an ancient city with no wall, of course, was open to attack open to challenge and difficulty, open to marauders and others who might do harm to the citizens therein. And so Nehemiah began the urgent task of rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. But there was an issue. There were enemies who did not want that wall completed. There were enemies to the Israelites who did not wish for Jerusalem to be an environment of safety again. Therefore, as Nehemiah and the others involved themselves in that work, there were enemies standing nearby. There were others who, in fact, could cause great problem. Here was Nehemiah's answer to that issue. The workmen, the various people who labored, they had a shovel or some implement of work in one hand and a weapon in the other. Now, what was the weapon for? It clearly wasn't to exchange pleasantries with the enemy. The weapon was obviously to afford them protection in light of the attack of an enemy. Could these people of God defend themselves? Sure they could. That's what the weapon was for. Was it, in, was it consistent with the things that were in fact done by these who were Israelites? Absolutely. You may notice in verses 13 to 17, especially that chapter, that there's a reference to the particular and definitive plan with which the organization of Nehemiah and his workers put all this into practice. They labored with greatness and did so in such a way, again, that weapons were utilized, if needed, 
to not only protect themselves, but with regard to the onslaught that may well have been involved by the enemy. Now there's another scene where, again, it seems clear that God's people were allowed to defend themselves. Now these two have been the Old Testament admittedly, but at the very least, it has afforded in us an opportunity to seriously consider not only them, but some New Testament ones as well. Let's turn to Luke 22. Near the closing chapter, only a couple of chapters following this in the book of Luke, we encounter some words by Jesus Himself. Without reading all of this, we at least can settle ourselves in the circumstances that were described. It's likely quite familiar to us, actually. May I turn your attention then to verse number 35. As Jesus addressed His apostles, it was to them that He said, And He said unto them, this is Jesus talking, When I sent you without purse and scrip and shoes, lacked you anything? And they said, Nothing. And so the Lord immediately asked of them, When you were sent out on the limited commission, and this had been some time prior to these events, He asked them, Did you lack anything? And they said no. All their needs were met, including their various personages concerning food, concerning other matters of necessity. All of those needs had been met. But now the next verse. Then said he unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it. And likewise his scrip, and he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you, that this is written, must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said unto them, It is enough. A very interesting and powerful development, isn't it? Here we are just a few hours in front of the Lord's crucifixion. He's going to be put to death early the next morning. We are now just slightly over 12 hours from the crucifixion. And in the course of that night, Jesus, of course, had many things to say to those apostles, reminding them about what was going to transpire on the morrow. And among those things, you may notice even here, He pointed out directly in verse number 37, that what had been written in the prophecy, what had been written in terms of information, he was reckoned among the transgressors. Now Jesus is going to be crucified between thieves the next morning, numbered with the transgressors, but at this moment, the apostles didn't fully understand what was about to take place. They didn't appreciate the gravity of the moment. You'll notice in the course of the discussion, Jesus had just said to them, "...take purse, take scrip, take sword." And it was the sword part that seemingly dwelled in them with a matter of question. Because in verse number 38, they said, Lord, here are two swords. We have two swords. In response, Jesus said, that'll be enough. Now at this point, let's develop a few considerations about this in light of the question that's been raised tonight. Can a Christian defend him or herself? Well, you'll notice on that slide, I've invited you to consider this. What does one use a sword to do? You certainly don't use it to tickle the enemy. You don't use it, in fact, to otherwise exchange pleasantries with those who may wish to do you harm. 
a sword is used not only for defense, but it's primarily an offensive weapon. You use it to inflict damage. You use it to inflict harm. You use it, you see, to not only ward off the onslaught of an attacker, but perhaps almost most of the time to inflict, in, inflict damage on the part of the attacker. Now, with that in mind, what did the Lord say? In this instance, the days concerning this are going to be challenging. I, you see, am not going to be here. Jesus was about to soon, of course, ascend back to the Father. And in that moment, at that time, the Lord encouraged them, this time you need to take scrip, you need to take purse, you need to take sword. Why would the apostles have needed a sword? Could it be to defend themselves? Could it be to, in fact, put themselves in a position of increased safety in light of the defenses that they were going to find themselves in need of? You and I have already well observed. Jesus had said in John 16, beginning in verse 1, the day is going to come when they who put you to death will think that they're doing God's service. God didn't leave these apostles without opportunity for defense. He didn't leave them without opportunity to, in fact, at least allow themselves to be protected from the onslaught of these attackers. Jesus encouraged them, if you don't have a sword, you better buy one. You need to avail yourself, you see, of something like this. On that slide, I've asked you to observe several things might be at least quickly to be noted. One of which is this. You and I have already observed these events were taking place already late in the evening. It would thus not seem as if the Lord's instruction concerning this sword was going to do them any good that night. There were no places open to go buy one at this hour. It would appear the Lord's instructions were for the days ahead. What was going to happen when these apostles undertook their great work of defense for the kingdom? Does that not indicate that Jesus was insinuating to them a need for care concerning personal protection? A need for care concerning personal consideration relative to protection against an attacker? Especially in light of that text we noted earlier in John 16, verses 1, 2, and 3. Maybe it is in that light you'll note near the bottom of that slide. That very night, you and I might recall that Jesus did say to Peter... Remember, Peter had a sword and used it to cut off the right ear of Malchus, as detailed for us in John 18. Jesus at that time said, Peter, put up the sword. You may notice Jesus didn't take it away from him. He said, put it up. It isn't needful for this moment because Jesus said, Don't you know I could call twelve legions of angels to deliver me from this moment? A sword is not going to fulfill that need if that's what I had in mind. But Jesus said, that's not the reason I came. I didn't come to be delivered from this moment. It's not the Father's will that I be delivered from this moment. It's the Father's will that I succumb to this moment. The sword was for a different time and place. And Peter might well need it in the days ahead of time, but not that night. Isn't it amazing then to reflect? Here's a New Testament example when apparently the Lord had no problem with the disciples making ready to defend themselves and equipping themselves with those things needful for such a defense. For that reason, as you close that slide, it only, I suppose, begs us to consider one more passage. 
this one in 1 Timothy 5. In that particular chapter, you may recall that Peter, or rather Paul, had some interesting things to say about life and times as a Christian. Among the things one could recollect, there was something about taking care of one's parents, especially as widows in their, in their later years. There was something about the character of the church taking care again of younger widows, if again that's something that's certainly to be appreciated. But I might ask in verse number 8, in the midst of all of that we read this, something about providing for one's own. If any provide not for his own, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Now put that in its consideration as one who would provide for his own. That word provide certainly involves caring for. It involves tending to the needs of. If there's an attacker at your house or mine, would it be providing for our spouse, gentlemen, if we just turn the other cheek and let the enemy do whatever he wills to our wife or children? That doesn't seem consistent. May I say, in light of these other passages that we've studied tonight, it certainly would seem as if we have every right to defend ourselves. God doesn't expect us to simply turn a blind eye, if you please, and allow these matters to develop in such a way that it could lead to harm for us, for our family, or yea, for any number of others that might be in our household. The usage of a sword, as it was in not only Nehemiah's day, but in the Lord's day, or the statement about blood guiltiness not being present in that scene of a thief breaking in and being found in Exodus 22. All of that reminds us, doesn't it, that the Word of God is such that we would be taking some passages out of their context if we then use these others to say, well, a Christian can't defend himself. A Christian has nothing that he can do in the protection of himself or those who are his family. That would not seem to be consistent with these other passages in light of the earnestness of the will of God. Let's close that slide then like this. Another part of this question that was asked, is defending the country wrong? Could a Christian serve in the military? Could a Christian serve in the Navy or the Army or the Air Force or the Marines? Could a Christian serve in the Coast Guard? Would that be acceptable? Would it be something that would be wholly inconsistent with the will of God? There has been a fair amount of disagreement, I suppose I could call it that. Some of the most noble of the Restoration Fathers had a great deal to say about this topic. You may have even read somewhat of what others like David Lipscomb or others shared about it. I would at least offer this quick thought. We do have a scene in Acts chapter 10 when there was a gentleman named Cornelius. And you might recall that as that chapter began, he was a member of the Italian band. He was a member of the military. Isn't it interesting that throughout the course of the 48 verses of that chapter, we find no reference, no insistence on Peter's part that he give up his role in the military. Nothing at all was said about that. Nothing was insisted about it. In fact, we find it not even mentioned beyond the observation of who he was. And later in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul would directly say, Whatever station a man is in, let him not seek to be released. 
Now, at that time, he applied it directly to a husband. If you're married to a wife, don't seek a divorce just because of the times of affliction that are coming. You be faithful to her. You be faithful to the calling in which you've accepted. He also went on to mention about slaves. If you currently are a slave, don't seek to be free in light of the coming digression and the coming challenge. On the other hand, if you're free, don't seek to be bound. I might say that Paul phrases that rather generally. I would at least say that they would have something to say. It would be possible for a person to be a faithful Christian and serve in the military. In the same way, it would be possible to not serve in the military and be a faithful Christian. Certainly, if a slave could be faithful, if a person in various stations of life, Paul did mention in 1 Corinthians 7, surely one would think it entirely possible in light of those events described in the military service. I'll at least offer that thought as we conclude that question. Question number two for the evening. This other one, too, is a somewhat lengthy one. I simply will close that slide by making mention of the one thing we just did in Acts chapter 10, but to allow it to bring us to question number two. This one, again, is brief to read, perhaps not so brief to discuss. Please explain Jesus' question in Matthew 27, verse 46. So that's the passage that was read tonight by Brother Wayne as a part of our service. But let's turn to Matthew 27. We'll reflect again on verse 46, and we will attempt to devote the remainder of the time tonight to inquiring as to the Lord's question in that verse. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The person has asked a great question. What did the Lord mean by that question? What was behind the Lord's statement? And what might be some incredible truths in it that perhaps should leave a lasting imprint upon you and me? Well, at least in the few moments we do have, let's discuss some of that and do so beginning on the slides you now have before you. You and I well know that as we arrive at the crucifixion of the Lord, we see some of the darkest reflections on human character to be seen anywhere in all the Bible. Injustice, absolute mockery of justice, one who is completely innocent and yet put to death for crimes not his own, over and over, the events of that time remind us what men can do. And so it was, as you start that slide with me, you and I have already noticed that we had arrived at the 9 o'clock hour that morning, and they nailed the nails into the hands of our Lord and also into His feet. And beginning at that moment, of course, He hung on the cross, and for three hours there was ordinary light. But starting at noon... It became dark. And for three hours, right here in the midst of the day, darkness covered the land. Is that not a reminder of the dark deeds of what people were doing? The sin and ugliness and ungodliness that was characteristic of what men had chosen to do concerning the Son of God? And yet, in that darkness, you notice one more time on that slide that we now come to the Lord's statement that we just read in verse 46, about the ninth hour. So we're now at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. 
Jesus had been on the cross six hours. You realize with me that the agony had been excruciating, and so many times death had not come so quickly, and yet the Lord only made it six hours. Some of His last words were these. It says He cried with a loud voice, apparently mustering some of the last elements of strength that He had. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. So here was Jesus on the cross. Many eyes riveted upon Him to see what He would say, how He would react. Many were weeping nearby, such as no doubt His mother and others. And yet in the midst of this, as you'll notice on the slide, Jesus makes this unusual statement. Eli, Eli. Now you probably easily recognize those first three letters are the very three letters that begin many of the most famous names of the Old Testament. Like Elijah, and Elisha, and Eliphalet, Eliphaz, and so many others. Well, you now know with me that those three letters, Eli, literally mean my God because the interpretation of the verse has already given that information to us. My God. What about the other parts? Lama Sabachthani. Lama, as you can see on the slide, means why. It's the way that an Aramaic one would begin a question. Why? Finally, this final statement of Sabachthani. That means again, to forsake, to abandon. And so to put all that together, we encounter this question, God, God, why have you abandoned me? Why abandon me? Why forsake me? As the Lord made that kind of a statement, it merely points us to now make a few observations from the verses that follow. Don't you find it intriguing that in the very next couple of verses, some who heard what Jesus said... They drew the conclusion, he's calling for Elijah. Let's see if he comes. Notice again, they recognized those first three letters. They understood that this reference to that sounded familiar to them. But not only that, could I call to your attention this. Jesus did apparently make a direct statement connected to abandonment, being forsaken. A characteristic, if you please, of being without the presence of the one who is being referenced. And in that regard, would at least highlight some matter in loneliness? At the very least, one can notice the Lord's statement was direct, and the question was easy to be appreciated. Some deeper thoughts, though, that go with it. I've asked you to observe on this slide... This question, so in what sense did the Father forsake Him? In what sense did the Father desert the Son? In what sense was He abandoned? I might point out that this is actually a passage in the Old Testament. That is to say, the Lord was quoting from Psalm 22. Hold your finger here. Let's turn back to Psalm 22 and see what David wrote. What were the circumstances there? And what might have been the emphasis then? At the very least, maybe it will shed some light upon the moment before us. In Psalm 22, David, that sweet singer of Israel, had these words to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? 
and from the words of my roaring. O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. And in the night season, and am not silent, but thou art holy. O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. So you'll notice the opening statement of verse 1 is directly the one the Lord quoted. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, we'd all be quick to agree David was not on a cross when he made this statement. David was not in the same position the Lord was in. And yet, he was in some place of being abandoned, some place of being, if you see, deserted. As usual, when you look at the various superscriptions of these, they often can provide some help, though they themselves are not inspired. You may notice the superscription for this psalm reads as follows. To the chief musician upon Ajgileth Shehar, a psalm of David. Now that isn't nearly as helpful as one might hope. But it is immediately attested to David. You and I know from the book of 1 Samuel especially that David was often on the run. And in many instances, those who were his soldiers left him. Sometimes because David told them to do this. David wanted their safety, and so he would remain in the mountain. He would remain in a place of confinement. Could it be that this was penned at some time connected to an event such as that? And so in that moment, maybe he perceived the enemy encroaching upon him, and maybe he had not had the relief that he had hoped from God. Could it be that David felt forsaken? He seems to have felt so by the words he used. Could it be that David felt deserted? He said he had cried to God, but God hadn't answered, both in the daytime and at night. I would again offer this thought, though the circumstances of Jesus were quite different than this. Nonetheless, there was enough of a sentiment of comparison, a matter of parallel structure that Jesus could borrow it. By the same token, aren't you impressed that while hanging on a cross... He could quote Scripture. I hope you and I know the Scriptures well enough to quote them even in times of duress. To quote them even in the greatest times of moment. The Lord could do it. Now you and I could easily appreciate then that as Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? David clearly felt as if the relief and deliverance from the Father had not come as timely as he had wanted it. Now on the cross, you and I know very well, Jesus, by His nature, knew there was not going to be any deliverance. He understood, you see, the Father's will was for Him to die, and He had previously even taught this. In Luke 18, He had already told His apostles, the Son of Man is going to enter Jerusalem. He's going to be rejected, mocked, delivered, and killed. The Lord knew all of this. doesn't change the fact that He was fully human as well as fully divine. None of us would want to die the way He did. None of us would want to suffer the excruciating treatment that He did. None of us would be mocked and reviled and have nails driven into our hands the way He did. He knew how it was going to hurt. And He knew how painful it was going to be. And here on the cross, maybe there was some element of at least momentary relief for which He had silently prayed. But even that relief was not to be. May I offer you this thought as you look furthermore on that slide. 
Some have at least offered a thought of challenge in, re in regard to this. Doesn't the Word of God promise that God will be with His faithful children? I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, Hebrews 13, 5. Didn't Jesus say, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I'll be with you all the way even to the end of the world, Matthew 28, 20. Hadn't the Lord more than once asserted He will be with anybody that's a faithful child of His, even through the moment of death? So what does it mean to say that Jesus apparently did feel some distance, an element of being forsaken? May I offer you this additional thought? None of us should see in this anything that would lead to any doubt on our part. Christ will be with us through everything, no matter what. This was a rather unique circumstance, not like yours and mine in that regard. And for that reason on this next slide, look at the way I would just ask you to consider some of the elements connected to this. In the cross, we see, of course, that means whereby human sin can be forgiven. We see that moment wherein redemption is going to be possible, not possible any other way. Only through the Master, through His blood, and through His sacrifice for the sins of humanity. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. He was made as if He had sin. It would seem to me it may be in that observation we come the closest to perhaps fully understanding what's involved in this. At that moment, Jesus carried every sin by everybody who has ever lived or shall ever live. It'd be impossible to think how many sins that would be. Over 8 billion people live on the planet now. Think about how many throughout the ages have lived here and how many may yet live here before the end of time. And every sin that every one of us has ever committed was on His shoulder at that moment. Is any wonder that at least for a passing moment, God forsook him? Because God can't dwell where sin is. That God cannot abide where it is. May I suggest to you, Jesus no doubt would have known this was coming. Given that he knew all things, he knew these passages like Psalm 5 verse 4. He knew texts like Habakkuk 1.13 that says God can't dwell where sin is. He would have known that this was going to happen. Does that not even increase our understanding of His love for us? That He was not only willing to bear the pain, the shame, the difficulties that went with the cross, He knew for a moment, at least for a moment, He would be forsaken by His Father. If He knew that, and it would certainly seem He did, then doesn't that only heighten how much He must have loved us? One thing about this next slide will be to reflect, perhaps in one final moment, upon the statement the Lord made. Have you thought about it this way with me? As I reflected upon preparing this, it somewhat weighed heavily upon me. You may have noticed Jesus had nothing to say about the pain of the crucifixion. He didn't plead for relief from the nails that were in His feet and His hands. He took it. The one thing, though, he was so saddened and sorry about is he's forsaken by his father. That meant everything to him. 
doesn't that beg a great question on your part and mine? How much does it mean to you and me to be apart from God? Does it bother us? Does it cause a sleepless night to think, I may not be right with God? Sometimes we can have a hardened conscience, can't we? We can live for days, weeks, months, years separate and apart from God, and maybe it doesn't even bother us. Sure bothered the Lord to be a forsaken by Him even for a moment. Thankfully, you and I rec- recognize very well that kind of prompting thought sure does highlight how much He loves us. In the cross, we see the God, the God's great hatred for human sin, but at the same time, we see His great love for human beings. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The famous refrain of John 3.16. As you and I close that slide and close our second question tonight, we do so with only a word of conclusion remaining. We've studied two questions, and that certainly doesn't seem like many. But it did seem to me in attempting to prepare them that there was much to say in each one of them or at least much that should be said, and perhaps there's still quite a bit that could be. But we have learned it is right for a Christian to defend himself. We don't go looking out to kill people. But if someone attacks, we do have the God-given right to defend ourselves and our loved ones. And by the same token, Jesus Himself on the cross, He made the observation, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in that moment, due to the fact He was carrying all of our sins, it was that statement of finality of what God has to do with sin. Doesn't that challenge us that we'd better take care of our sins? Or better yet, have the Lord do it. Because once we leave this life, there shall be no taking care of sin. And we will be in a position in which we'll be forever separated from the God of heaven because He will not dwell where there's sin. And so we won't be allowed heaven in that beautiful entrance place there. Tonight, as you and I draw this lesson to its conclusion, it could be that there's someone in this assembly who upon consideration of your life would like to make some changes. You realize the Lord's love for you is so great, and He wants you to love Him back. If you have so lived in a way that that love has not been evident, that you have not lived a committed life of devotion to Him, You could make that right tonight. That's called repentance. As a wayward child of God, repent of those sins and those errors. Make observation and confession of them. And He's promised that He'll forgive you. And that blood of Christ can just as wonderfully and swiftly forgive you as it once had done in the sweet act of baptism. And so it is, though, if you've never become a Christian, you need to believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. And we'd be honored to assist, to help, to encourage Tonight, if we could in any way offer a hand of encouragement and love in either of these circumstances, we'd be delighted to do it. While together we stand and sing the chosen song.